All right, let's take our Bibles and study just for a little bit this morning uh, from the book of Philippians, my favorite book of the Bible. This morning, uh, we have heard this theme about God creating us for a purpose, and the kids this summer have heard that emphasized over and over again, and we've really valued that, and we want them to, to know again and again through all that we do to teach, and with this applies to children, this applies to teenagers, this applies to adults. We want every single person that comes to this church to know about the love and mercy of God. We want them to know that Jesus Christ came to save us, that through Christ we can be delivered from sin, that sin can be erased from our lives and we can have a new life, a transformed life that is marked by holiness. That's why God created us. God created us, as we just sang, to live for him. He created us to be pure and holy. He created us to be in a right relationship with him. And the problem of sin is that sin corrupted that on every single level. Sin put us in a position where we have no hope, no way out, no escape, no ability to redeem ourselves, no ability to to do anything that would satisfy the holiness of God, that would ever approach the level of satisfying the holiness of God. So we're stuck. As the kids put it this summer, we're shipwrecked. We have no hope. And yet, here's what Christ did. Christ came and he died for our sin. He took our place. He was the sacrifice. And because he was the sacrifice, he was able to redeem us because he was perfect. God stepped in, intervened, took our place, and released us from the bondage of sin and gave us a complete exoneration of sin when we trust him. Now, once we get saved, Once we put our confidence in Christ, we're given a new purpose and a new calling. Whereas before we lived for ourselves, whereas before we had no hope, whereas before we were completely stuck, dead in the water, now our goal, our purpose, our meaning in life is to be like Christ and to live for Him and to tell everybody that we come in contact how He has changed our lives forever. Now, the first people that ever got that responsibility, the first people that were ever told, this is what you're supposed to do because of Christ, are the disciples. And we have studied them many times. We've talked over and over about the profound difference in their lives in terms of power and confidence and boldness after Pentecost. And we know that in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit came as Christ had promised, and he equipped them, he empowered them, and that was the reason why they became so different, and why they were so much more bold and forthright and undaunted in terms of declaring their love for the Lord and in terms of declaring the gospel. And that's really a powerful um, thing that we need to understand, because the same Spirit that indwelled them is the same Spirit that we have indwelling us. How many know that's true this morning? So, the same power, the same boldness, the same confidence, the same ability, the same strength that they had throughout the book of Acts is now imparted onto us. And yet so many times we walk around weak or we walk around with with an insecurity or, or a lack of confidence. We need to go back and remember that the Spirit's power that was given to the disciples is the Spirit's power that was given to us. What's really compelling to me After the Gospels, when we see, and we'll look at this in a second, what the disciples were like, what's compelling to me is not just that the disciples were given the Holy Spirit and now had power, confidence, and boldness, and strength. 
What's significant is that the disciples had a significant change in their love for the Lord. They had walked with Jesus for three years every day, watching him, learning from him, listening to him, watching him do miracles, seeing him uh, change lives. Every day they walked with him, but until Acts, we don't really sense how much they loved him. Peter, yes. John, yes. But the others just seem kind of a little bit marginal. And we also see when we get to the book of Acts, a complete change in their attitude toward ministry. Now that's interesting because after Jesus left, everything changed. No longer do they have the tangible presence of Jesus with them every day. No longer do they have the security and the strength of being in his actual presence. Now they're facing new public hostility, new opposition. Now the enemy's gotten a little bit more bold because they've now put Jesus to death. They don't know what happened after he died. Nobody can explain that. But at least they got him to the cross. So now they're trying to stop the disciples from spreading this further. And then there's a new intense warfare from the devil who certainly wants to kill any passion that they'd have, certainly wants to cut down uh, any progression of ministry. He knew what happened at the tomb. He knew Jesus wasn't in there anymore. He knew Jesus was alive. So the first thing the devil wants to do is to try to cut the ministry off at the throat. He wants, he wants to stop it immediately. So they're dealing with no longer having Jesus. They're dealing with opposition from the world. They're dealing with opposition from the devil. And then the fourth thing they're dealing with is a constant insecurity. They lacked any formal training. They had not really had any success uh, or effectiveness in ministry, even though they walked with Jesus. If you go through the Gospels, there are very few times where the disciples are seen as strong and effective. I think one or two times specifically where they come back and say, we did good. Everything else is self-focused. Everything else is insecure. Everything else is somewhat of a failure. They had not really distinguished themselves in terms of their ministry while he was there. And while they were faithful sometimes, and while there were times where they were somewhat useful, more often than not, the vast majority of the time, they were fearful, they were distracted, and they were thinking about themselves. And what's even more embarrassing than that, and we'll get to the text in a minute, what's even more embarrassing than that were all the times that they kind of seemed put out. You ever thought about that? The times when the disciples seem kind of put out by ministry. You know, sometimes ministry's hard and you get weary and you kind of go, oh, i got to do this again. Our, our team, I'm so proud of our team. Rarely, if ever, do I see somebody just kind of going, I can't believe i got to do this again. You want me to come in at 8 and run sound? You want me to set up easels? You want us to come to practice again on Thursday night? Never see that. And that's a blessing from the Lord. We need to keep that attitude. But a lot of times in ministry, you just get weary. And you think, oh, I'm up on the schedule again to do nursery. I don't, I don't want to do nursery this week. I wish somebody else would help with nursery. The disciples many times look put out. When... In Luke 8, when the crowds are listening to Jesus and there are thousands of people on the hill and the day is starting to, to end and the sun's going down and the people are going, we're kind of hungry and people are getting a little restless. And the disciples go to Jesus and they say, you know what, Jesus, we need to get rid of these people. 
This is going to be a disaster. They're all hungry. We don't have any money to feed them. Look, the ministry day's done. Jesus, look, it's been a long day. We've been hanging out with you. It's hot. Even in Galilee, it's hot. And the people are getting grouchy. And let's just send them away. And they're missing the physical and spiritual hunger of the people. And then you've got a time where little kids, like we saw this morning, come running up to Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. And Jesus is smiling and hugging them. And the disciples are going, hey, get out of here. What are you kids? What do you think you're doing? I mean, if you really read the text the way it's written, that's what they're saying. It says they rebuke the children. Hey, knock it off. Get out of here. Jesus is busy. That's what the disciples are saying. Put out, irritated, annoyed, get out of here. We got more important things to do than you kids. Even when Jesus is at the well and he's talking to the Samaritan woman and he's ministering to her, disciples come up and go, what are you doing? Why are you talking to her? What, what? Jesus, come on, what are you? this is a Samaritan and it's a woman. Come on, you don't, no, you don't have contact with her. Missing the fact that her life is changing before their eyes. And then she goes and gets other people and says, I just met Jesus. See, sometimes our attitude is wrong. After Acts 2, it's interesting that we never see that attitude. I can't think of one moment after Acts 2 where the disciples for even a second look irritated or annoyed or inconvenienced by their calling or bothered that they're associated with Christ, or, or now, wow, look at the opposition we got going on. What are we going to do with this? I can't believe we got ourselves into this. I mean, in the private conversations that we don't see in Scripture, what were they saying? We don't see any evidence from Acts 2 on that they were going, boy, this is a hassle, isn't it? Can you believe what we got into? I thought we were just going to get to follow Jesus around. We never thought he'd leave. Now look at us. We're just a bunch of ragtag people that are trying to put it on, and we don't know what to do. No, it's never there. They actually not only deal with the opposition, they actually welcome it. There's kind of a, a humble and religious, uh, uh, excuse me, a righteous defiance when they're opposed and said, you guys need to stop talking. You know what? You keep talking, we're going to put you in jail. They go, bring it on. I mean, don't you think Peter at one point said, bring it on? Come on, how many think Peter said, bring it on? I do. Go ahead. Come on. You think you're going to tell us to be quiet? Uh-uh, not going to happen. We'll keep talking about Jesus whenever we want. You can threaten us. You can put us in jail. You can kill us. It's not going to matter. Their love for the Lord was so much deeper. They don't become bold and confident just because the Holy Spirit gave them power. They became bold and confident because they loved the Lord so much and because the power of the Spirit gave them an unshakable determination to let everybody know what Jesus had done in their lives. Listen, this is the point of the study. Living for Jesus became their life. Not just, well, I do church, I'm religious, I read, I'm with my group, I go to Bible study. Those are all wonderful things. Those are all part of the Christian faith. But this was their life. You couldn't separate them from their relationship with Jesus. It was their singular preoccupation. There was nothing else. There was no other priority. There was no other purpose. Serving him wasn't optional. It was essential. 
Holiness wasn't optional. It was a lifestyle. Telling people about Jesus and about his grace and making disciples wasn't something they did in their spare time. It wasn't a suggestion. It was their command and their commission. Now, what gave them such a clear sense of that was that they wanted to honor the Lord. Now, I've wrestled with that phrase a little bit over the past few days. What does it mean to honor the Lord? The kids have talked all summer about being created by God and about their purpose and about understanding why God wants their lives and understanding what it means to be in relationship with Christ, that we're his workmanship created for good works. What does that mean? What does it mean to honor the Lord? Because we've been saved by his undeserved grace. We brought nothing to the table. We had nothing righteous in us. There's no worth. There's no benefit. There's no value that we have to God other than we're his creation. We've been saved by his grace. We've been redeemed by his, uh, uh, by his mercy. We have been sanctified by his spirit. We've been given a holy calling. Everything that you and I are as believers is because of Christ. There's not one thing that Paul Rhodes says, well, look at me, I've helped the situation. No, everything is from Jesus Christ. So how in the world am I supposed to honor the Lord? And why is that so important? It's interesting that both the Hebrew and the Greek words for honor mean essentially the same thing. They mean to give weight to. They mean to place value on highly. They mean to show deference and reverence for someone who is higher than you. In other words, the Christian walk is not just saying, yes, God is God, and Jesus is my Savior, and I'm glad I'm forgiven, and I'm going to heaven, and and I'm just waiting. There is an intentional and purposeful and serious next level. It is to say, I am different, I am living different because I am so grateful and so humbled and because there's nothing more precious in the world, listen now, than being like Jesus Christ. So that is going to be my highest value and nothing even comes close to being second. That's why Jesus says, look, If you don't hate everything else in comparison to me, he's not saying hate everything. He's saying in comparison to how much you love me, everything else should seem just a mere pittance. That you would love me and worship me and live for me. Now, before we see what that looks like in Philippians 1, we're going to read at the end this morning. How's that for different? Stop and ask the obvious question. If Jesus said, you got to hate everything in comparison to how much you love me. The question that came to my mind is, why such an extreme declaration? Why does Jesus go so far? Why does he draw the line so sharply that everything and everyone in our life, our love for them should pale in comparison to our love for him? Why, why so extreme? A lot of the reason is our track record of, as humans. A lot of the reason is that even as people 
who had a unique and sanctified relationship with God, that there are many times where we don't honor him and how they live. Listen to this verse from Isaiah 29. Then the Lord said, My people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. In other words, their honor for him is shallow. He's not valuable to them. It's unimportant, and ultimately that means they're insincere. Lack of honor for the Lord, listen now, reveals an inner disease. It means that our hearts are far from the Lord. And I looked up what the word far means, and you know what it means? It means far. It means a great distance. It means that you're separated. So the people with their lips say, oh, we love the Lord. And they do lip service, and they say the right things, but their hearts are distant, and that's not accidental. The meaning of the verb is that it's intentional. Whether consciously or unconsciously, there's a purposeful decision to separate from the Lord. And here's the interesting thing. He says, it's my people. It's people that would say, oh, I have a relationship with the Lord. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm walking with God. I'm one of God's chosen people. I'm, I'm, I'm his child. And yet, as they're saying that, they know in their heart, I'm not really walking with him, though. I'm not really honoring him and how I live. Biblical history is littered with people like that. The New Testament even goes so far as to specifically name names of people who did this to show how much we need to guard against it. The Pharisees, the Bible says, love the place of honor. They love to walk around going, look at us. We get the high places. You people sit down there. We're the Pharisees. We get to come up here and kind of pose. We have all the knowledge. You have nothing. You need us. They love the high places rather than teaching people about the goodness of God. Ananias and Sapphira, they loved money. They loved lying more than they loved sacrifice and truth. The Bible says that Demas loved the world more than he loved Jesus, so much so that he deserted Paul in the ministry. It says that Alexander the coppersmith loved power and control more than he loved being a servant. It says that Diotrephes loved preeminence more than he loved humility and honoring the only one worthy of honor. Name after name after name of people that would have said, oh yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, but they didn't honor him. And how many know that there's nothing that disappoints the Lord more or shows greater disregard for his sacrifice than to act like you're close to him when your heart's really far away? Oh, that breaks the heart of God. That somebody would say, yep, and in their life they're living a completely different way. What a contrast to Philippians 1. Let's look at it. We're going to read it, and then we're going to pray. Look just for a moment. Let's just develop a tiny bit of application, and then we'll go down to the art fair. Chapter 1 of Philippians. Thank you for turning. Start in verse 19. I know we're jumping right in the middle of the text, but let's just go with this. Paul says, I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, 
Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor to me, and I do not know which to choose. Now, very quickly, if there's one thing that we know about the Apostle Paul, is that he knew his purpose for being a believer. Paul knew his purpose for being a believer. Just jump through it. You can underline or write in the margin or look at it later. Look just at the first chapter in verse 6. He knew that Christ not only saved us and transformed us, that he'll also perfect that work in us when we get to heaven. He knew that. In verse 11, he knew that when we're, that we're filled with the fruit of God's righteousness and that the purpose of being filled with the fruit of God's righteousness is to glorify God. In verses 12 and 13, he knew that the reason he was in jail, because he's writing this from a cell, he knew that the reason he was in jail in Rome was that the gospel would advance more quickly in Rome because of him. So how do we know that's true? Well, they had to change the guard more often than not because Paul would just sit in the jail all day and speak the gospel to people. Imagine that. You're sitting in a cold cell. You know you're going to be executed. You're going to have your head cut off at some point. You're never going to get out. What would we do? He just spends all day witnessing to the guards. And the guards start to listen, Roman guards. And the, and the keeper of the, of the jail starts to go, wait a second. These guys are talking about Jesus. I better get them out of there. So instead of six-hour shifts, they went to four-hour shifts. That's how effective Paul was. And as he continued to witness, then those Roman guards would go home and say, you know, I was talking to this prisoner today. Man, he was talking like crazy. He's pretty convincing, too. And then they started to talk to their family and their friends. And pretty soon, Rome started to hear the gospel. And it only happened because Paul was in a cell. There was personal cost, but he saw God's greater purpose for him and for the ministry. And then look at verse 14. He knew that his trial, this being in jail, had actually given other believers more boldness and courage. You would think it would diminish their confidence because they'd say, when we speak for the gospel, we get thrown in jail. But they heard about Paul, and they heard about the Roman guards, and they heard what was happening, and they said, you know what, we're going to do that too. Have you ever been around a person that's just in love with the Lord so much that it's infectious and you go, what am I doing? I can't, I, I, need to, I need to love the Lord more. I need to talk about the Lord more. I was down at a conference with some pastors two weeks ago and, and, and just being in their presence, I was like, man, I gotta get, I gotta get more excited about ministry. I gotta spend more time with the Lord. I gotta love the Lord more because I had been around infectious believers. That's what it does. And then in verse 18, he knew he could rejoice because he knew that whatever happened to him, whether he was killed or released, Christ would be exalted and the gospel would advance. Now, with those five truths in mind, Paul writes verse 21. Let's read it together. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Read it with me again. I didn't hear you. Ready? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That wasn't a death wish. That wasn't hyperbole. Paul knew if I keep living, I get to have a fruitful ministry and impact lives for Christ. And if they kill me, I get to go to heaven. Aren't you craving heaven more and more with every day with what's going on in the world? 
He says, look, if I got to stay here, it's wonderful. I'm witnessing to the guards. I'm writing letters. The church is being encouraged. People are being saved. I'm discipling people from a jail cell. I'm doing all this, and this is fruitful, and I'm excited, and I get to proclaim the gospel and train believers. But you know what? If they come in one day and say, it's the day, I get to go be with Christ. So it's a win-win either way, but I'm torn. Because so much of me wants to be with the Lord, and yet I know I got fruitful ministry here. So what do I wish for? Think about what a powerful sentence this is. Really, I mean, really, we're, we're going to be done in two minutes. Just sit with it. Just sit with it. It's a powerful sentence. For me to live is Christ. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, and you are a child of God, and He is your Lord, that means your life is His, and you're to train yourself to be like Him. And because He's saved you and given you a new life, and you're called to be a witness and ambassador, your life and my life have the purpose of leading people to Christ and building them up in their faith. That's what we do to honor God. There's nothing else. There's no other option. There's not an alternative. There's not a different path. There's not other courses to take. Our whole life is to lead people to Christ and build them up in their faith. Now, how do we make sure that we're not only right for the job, but also prepared? Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2. Whoever cleanses or sanctifies themselves from impurity... He will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. So what does that say? It says that the prerequisite for honoring the Lord is purifying ourselves from anything that displeases God or offends his holiness. The prerequisite for honoring God is to eradicate sin. Once we do that, God fulfills his promise and says, when you eradicate sin, when you get serious about it, when you put off the childish things and live for me, when you do that, I promise I will make you useful and prepared for my work. But as long as you're a dirty vessel, as long as there's junk in the glass, so to speak, because that's the meaning of the word. If, if you go in your house today and you want to grab a clean, nice, cold glass of water, which I know most of you do because you're fanning yourselves, maybe dump it over your head and then get a glass, right? You go into the cabinet and you grab it and there's all kinds of junk and gunk in it. Are you going to go over to the fridge and go, mmm, clean water? You're going to go, that's disgusting. All right, who didn't do the dishes? And you'd put the glass in the sink, and you'd put some soap in it, and you'd rinse it out, and you'd say, that's going to need to run through the dishwasher before I'm going to drink out of it. So many times we offer our lives to God, and we say, here's the vessel, Lord. And he looks at it and goes, what's all that junk in there? But, I can't use that. You're not clean. You're not sanctified. What's going on? I've forgiven you. I've released you from the power and bondage of sin. I've told you. I'll always give you no escape from sin. And you're bringing this to me? When we honor the Lord, we're a clean vessel prepared to do the work. So now look at the verse one more time. He says, for me to live is Christ. In other words, for me 
The whole purpose of life, the reason I get up in the morning, the reason I deny myself throughout the day, the reason I reject sin, the reason I'm so passionate about telling people the gospel, the reason I continue to fervently pray for people and build them up, make disciples, the reason I'm so singularly focused on what I'm doing is because of Jesus Christ. I want to love him. I want to live for him. I want to honor him. I want to talk about him. And I want to serve him. That's my honor. That's what I get to do. Would you say that about yourself this morning? Is that your purpose? As you sit there this morning, we all sang it. I was made to live for you. I was created for your glory. And if you're like me, you've received his grace and mercy in your life. And you've trusted Christ. And he's your Lord. And he's called you. And you're going to heaven. And you're sanctified and you have his spirit. Now, our calling is to live for him. That's not a light responsibility. That is our life. It's our commission. How will you honor Jesus Christ today? How will you honor him tomorrow? How will you honor him throughout this week? When you get to the end of your life, will you be able to say like Paul with truth and sincerity, if I live, I live for Christ. If I die, I get to be with him. It's our honor to honor him. One day, Revelation says, Every living creature will give praise and honor to God. Every living creature, the bugs, the birds, the animals, the lions, the zebras, the giraffes, the fish, the whales, and every single person who's ever lived will bow before him and give honor and praise to him because he's the only one worthy of it. You know what God says? You get to do that now. Now. 